and welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Berg. Hamil Javeri, our usual Friday co-host, is out this week on on an assignment in Las Vegas. Uh, so I am happy to bring on my colleague, Michelle Martinelli. Michelle, how are you? I'm good. I've had a few too many cups of coffee this morning, so I'm a little jittery. But other than that, great. Well, it's funny you should mention that because we have, we have questions from the internet and uh, a couple of them are coffee related. So I'm glad you started us out that way. Uh, actually, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into I'm going to take that one first. I wasn't planning on it, but since you provided a segue... <laughs> Um, I got, you had a coffee experience. I had a coffee experience, and I'm writing about it right now, so I don't want to. I don't want to scoop myself too much. But uh, Jake at Jake MHS, whose Twitter handle is Jake with a purpose, he says, "Have you learned what Cuban coffee is yet, Michelle? Did you before? I don't know how much you followed my Cuban coffee experience <laughs> over this week. Had you? You can be honest." Had you heard of Cuban coffee? Did you know anything about Cuban coffee before I became the biggest villain on Miami Twitter? I think the extent of my knowledge on it was that it's uh, typically strong. But I don't know any much beyond that, beyond your your live tweeting of your experience. So I have come to understand and learn a lot about Cuban coffee because people have been yelling about it, at me about it literally for four straight days. Um, I'm, I'm writing about this as we speak, and again, I don't want to get too deep into it and the response and uh, all of the different aspects that went into it, especially since we talked about it with, I talked about it with Charles on the, on the earlier show this week. But essentially, I went to Miami for the All-Star Game in the Marlins press box, the first baseball press box I've ever seen where this is the case. Uh, uh, they did not have coffee uh, ready, and and so you know they did have ice cream and popcorn and gummy bears, and I, I very much appreciate all of that. It's not complaining about the lack of coffee, but I was forced to find some coffee at Marlins Park. The coffee that I was directed toward was from a place in the Taste of Miami section. It was Cuban coffee. It was something called a colada, which I will admit, and I will admit comfortably, I was not familiar with before I went to Miami. I knew that there was a Miami coffee culture and a Cuban coffee scene there. I'd never tried a colada. I did not know what to expect of a colada. I tweeted my surprise that it was so small. I didn't realize that in so doing, uh, I guess I was sort of painting myself as the the ignorant outsider coming to Miami and trying this coffee for the first time. As it turns out, it is an espresso. It's brewed with uh, the sugar. The sugar is, is put in the pot as you brew the espresso, so it's extremely sweet, very syrupy, and very, very strong coffee-flavored, small drink of coffee, so strong that people often share this tiny espresso-sized drink. Right, okay. That makes sense. Is it sweet? Like It was sweet? extremely sweet. I honestly, and I, if anyone listens to this, I think this will only make them angrier. I didn't really like it all that much. I don't, <laughs> I don't like sugar in coffee, so it was, uh, this strayed more toward dessert for me than coffee, which is something like, while I love it and drink tons of it, it is always for me something that that fills the the void uh, that I experience without coffee, and so I'm not in it for the sugar, and this provided a, a lot of sugar. 
did, did it have the, you know, the caffeine boost? It does surprise me that so, you were at a press box that didn't offer coffee for a bunch of people who rely very heavily on coffee to do their jobs. Um, so did it serve its purpose? It did. It did. Um, but that was that was one of the big surprises was and I think why people thought the tweet was so funny of me saying, oh, my God, you know, I can't I need a coffee and, and all they're going to give me is this tiny little coffee is that reputedly it is extremely strong in my experience. It really wasn't nearly as strong as everyone said. It it did it. It got me there. It it was like drinking a coffee. It wasn't like I I was without caffeine, but I will say that like it it didn't keep me up. The either I I wound up having one on on the night of the home run derby on Monday, another one before the All-Star game on Tuesday. Uh it got me through the night and and kept me working, but it didn't keep me up late at night and then on Wednesday before I left, I went to an actual Cuban coffee stand uh, because I wanted to try one outside of the ballpark. And again, it was like drinking a single full coffee in a much smaller shot. And by the time I honestly stopped on my way, on my walk back to the hotel, I stopped for another coffee. Okay. Um, but I drink I drink a ton of coffee. Like you, I drink a ton of coffee. Like So I usually do need two cups of coffee to get me going in the morning, and this provided one of them. This sounds like something I would actually enjoy, because I'm actually very much in a minority of, I don't enjoy the taste of coffee. I'm the type of person that drinks it purely for the caffeine. So if I can just take you know an espresso shot or two and have the same effect without drinking a couple cups of coffee, I'm good with that. So this sounds like something I might actually like. See, for most of my coffee drinking life, I would say I was with you, but I think that at some point I became so helplessly addicted that I flipped over into actually liking it. Like when I first drank coffee, I remember thinking like, this is gross, this is the means to an end. But Mm -hmm. over time, I have come to really enjoy the flavor of coffee, which I realize is entirely wrapped up in the buzz that it gives me and, and the addiction that I have. Uh, and it's actually, so over like the past seven or eight months, I've been um, brewing my own cold brew at home a lot just because, it, honestly, I, oh, I, dr- I, well, I drink so much coffee that it was just a like a financial decision more than anything else. It's like when I'm spending like 10 to $12 a day on coffee, yeah. I should really just take care of this on my own and, <laughs> and save that money. But that has made me a little bit more conscious of how the coffee tastes and what I like in a cold brew coffee. And so made me a little bit more of a snob and also honestly made me come to understand craft beer people a little bit more than I otherwise would. Interesting. Well, learned something. Uh, I did learn something. (laughs) I learned something. I learned something. Um, I will never again forget the specifics of Cuban coffee because I honestly, the tweet that I I made, one of the tweets uh, is by far, by far, by like six times the most engaged tweet I have been able to find that I've ever had. Uh, there's not like a good way to look that all up at once on Twitter, but uh, I, while I don't have a ton of, of experience with Twitter stats, uh, as far as I can find, this is like just wildly more popular and more seen than any other tweet I've ever had. Well, that's, you know... Don't uh, don't make people mad. <laughs> don't mess with Miami Twitter. They yeah. roll extremely deep. Uh, our next question uh, comes from our man Charles, and 
Uh, you know, I'm going to skip this because we just did a food one. We're going to come back to Charles. Um, that's just a tease. <laughs> Charles has one. But this is also, uh, this one's, I think, also good for you for a variety of reasons. Uh, Michelle covers driving and, and racing and auto sports for For the Win, but is also a native of Michigan. I am, yes. Uh, from just outside of Detroit. Uh, <laughs> so... At Citar, who frequently asks us questions and listens to the show, he wants to know, this is the future, he says, human drivers are outlawed, all automated now, but you live farther away, your commute is an hour, do you A, sleep in the car and get ready at the end of the commute, B, prep for work, C, get ready but take another nap on the road, or D, catch up on TV, reading, etc.? So that's an interesting question. I, I don't know how I feel in general about automated cars. You know, uh, driverless cars. That yeah, well, that's what. It seems like it doesn't work, but let's, for the sake of argument, say that it is totally safe and. Wait, you're concerned. You're con- you're concerned about the safety. Because uh, uh, yeah, I have a lot of car. questions. Absolutely. I have a lot of questions about driverless cars that I was hoping we could talk about. Uh, so, but I want to start there because my understanding is that these are going to be and and you, it's it's a leap of faith, right? You have to just be like, right. okay, well, I'll put the robots in control, and like I know that I think most people feel this way, but like I feel like I'm a really good driver and I'm probably better than the robot. But I think that the idea is that if it's all robots, they will prove better than all humans. Right. Okay. So that's the idea then, that if you have all robots, they're theoretically working with each other or sensing each other. Because I feel like if you just had one driverless car out there on the road, that doesn't replace a human reaction time as you very often need when you're behind the wheel. Right. I think it would be other, I think it would be humans that would be most likely to screw up the driverless cars because the driverless cars will behave predictably and humans are pathetic and human. Yes, absolutely. Not robots. Uh, so which is, your, which is your choice? If, if we do go driverless, how mm-hmm. do you spend your commute? Um, you know, if that's the case and it's like all totally safe and this is the norm and this is what we do, um, probably either get ready for work or already use that time to start doing work. Yeah. Uh, you know, to the extent of what you could do without the internet, although if we've got automatic, you know, robotic drivers, we probably have Wi-Fi in the car as well. You'd hope. Yeah. So, yeah, either I would probably either get ready for work and use the commute for that or get a jump start on the day and probably start doing work. Yeah. Not a fascinating answer. But I know. I think that's right. I mean, like, you know, it's 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 presented as this foreign concept, but like I used to live about an hour's train ride from the city and commute in every day. So I have that experience of sitting somewhere for an hour before work. And I almost always, I almost always spent the time reading, which is a form of preparing for work for me because I was reading Mm -hmm. about baseball and finding things I wanted to write about. Yeah, absolutely. And I have that same experience when I was in um, Chicago for a few months, my commute on a pretty much daily basis was about an hour and a half on the train. And I just felt like I was losing that time because you couldn't necessarily do, you know, reading and stuff like that, but you couldn't necessarily do all the things that you wanted to do, like whip out your computer and, and start working. 
So, yeah, I feel like if we're in a driverless car or something, do I have to sit in the passenger seat or the driver's seat, though? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think ultimately the idea will be, like, they they're, they redefine how the seats even work, right? Like, it would, I, yeah. would almost, I would almost envision the driverless car of the future as being set up, like, four seats around a card table, like the those seats on Amtrak with the table <laughs> in the middle, rather yeah. than, because you don't even need to face forward once once we're full automation. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, but given my knack for motion sickness, I'm probably going to call dibs then on the, fa- the seats facing forward. So uh, now there's there's more to this because uh, and so first of all, I I imagine and I, and I haven't spent a ton of time in Detroit, but Detroit is not a very like it's a it's a very driving heavy city, right? Absolutely. Um, there is some public transportation. But I would say the I, I couldn't put a specific number on it, but I would say the vast majority of people drive a car. It's the motor city. It's there's the suburbs go way far out. And just the idea of everyone has a car and everyone, you know, has a relative who at some point worked for one of the big three car companies and um, it, people drive. That's, it, it would be kind of um, sacrilegious to say that you have excellent public transportation when you know the the whole city is driven or no pun intended driven around cars yeah and and so part of i guess my concern about the uh the automated car is that i well in new york in new york city i hate driving i we have a car here because my wife needs to take it to work uh because she doesn't really work in a subway accessible spot but I try never to drive around the city. I really don't like it. Even if the trip is shorter, I would much prefer taking the subway because I won't have to worry about parking. Uh, I might then I might you know be able to leave from a different location, etc. But what I do like, um, I really like driving on like the open road and exploring and going places that I might not be you know taken to directly on Google Maps or by an automated car. And so I worry that the automated car and the prevalence, if it comes, will sort of kill the cruising aspect of driving, which I find really fun. Well, and I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, I, I don't wouldn't say that I necessarily love it or don't love it, but I have no problem driving long distances in the car. And there is something sort of relaxing and maybe even cathartic about it. And I think a lot of people probably feel the same way of like that, you know, even if we do have driverless cars, that it's not going to stop people from wanting to take cross country road trips, if that's your thing, or drive through the country or, you know, experience that kind of seclusion aspect of it or exploratory aspect of it, you know? Yeah, I think that's right, and I think, so I, I kind of feel like there will still be a market for dry, driven, unless they make it illegal, like Sitar says, like, I feel mm-hmm. like people are still, there might be, I think we'll see more, I think in the coming 10 years or so, we'll see more driverless cars, obviously, but I think that there will still be, for a long time, a market uh, for people who just want to drive. Last thing on this, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, because I don't know the last time you've, you've been back to Detroit, or how much you know about this, I just happened to read about it recently in the New York Times, uh, did, are you aware of the different uh, driverless car experiments that are happening now outside of Detroit? No, actually. I mean, I was in Detroit last weekend, um, but no, I didn't realize that that was 
happening. So I guess um, different places in Michigan, in the interest of keeping uh, the auto industry in Michigan relevant and, and timely, uh, Ann Arbor, and I think a lot of it is through University of Michigan, has set up a 30-acre fake like mini town where um, all sorts of companies, like not people from the university and researchers from the university, but also I think Toyota is there and various other companies who are experimenting with driverless cars have this sort of test town where they can try out different things. And some of the different things they're trying, trying, trying out uh, sound phenomenal, especially uh, they're, they're making the cars sort of radio controlled so that the cars are putting out signals to red lights down the road that say like car is coming adjust your light schedule and the ultimate goal is to essentially eliminate wait times at red lights and in traffic because if you're all driverless cars you'll be able to direct all of them uh, if they're all on the same network they'll all be able to avoid traffic uh, and now now there's another one I think that's that's even larger it's like 200 acres opening in Ypsilanti which I know to be a town in Michigan uh, yeah, uh, right around the corner from Ann Arbor. <laughs> it okay. is a town in Michigan. Um, um, so yeah, that's, that's dope. That's interesting because you think about it, how often are you, like, are, are red lights not timed to deal with traffic? Or Well, I mean, you drive, in, you drive in Northern Virginia, right? I mean, you drive in Northern Virginia. That is literally the worst place in the world to drive. Yeah, I, I in general. And I would probably put that, extend that to Washington, D.C. as well, that mm-hmm. there are so so many times that I'm specifically stuck in traffic because actually right around the corner from my building by the Pentagon, um, that the red light is there are a couple series of red lights and they're not timed properly to work with each other. And they create a traffic jam specifically because they're not working together. It is extremely frustrating. And one of the things I think that self-driving cars are going to be good for last question on this. Uh, if you live near the Pentagon, have you yet been burned by the, I forget what road it is. One of the roads right near the Pentagon cuts from like a 55 mile speed limit to a 35 mile speed limit with almost no warning whatsoever and no real indication that the, that the speed limit should change. And then right after that, they pull me over constantly and I've gotten like seven tickets there. So I'm going to get us, it's, the George Washington Parkway. Okay. Maybe that you have, might you have be a right. View of the river. No, no. So this is closer no. to the Pentagon. I know that I know the George Washington Parkway because that was like the main route off but the it Beltway. Takes you to... By the Pentagon. Oh, I'm d- thinking okay. There's... So it might be the George Washington Par- Parkway deeper in. I'm I'm thinking of the leg like from the Beltway to the Key Bridge, um, but maybe further east of that. Um, I think I have a general idea of where you're talking about, but it also sounds like this is probably a common problem. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, I have never personally, knock on wood, been pulled over because of it, but there are plenty of times when, yeah, I'm driving down GW Parkway and, you know, the speed limit is 50 and, you know, everyone's going a little faster than that anyway. And then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, why are cars slowing down so badly? And it's, oh, because the speed limit has suddenly dropped without any warning signs to, yeah, 35, 40 miles an hour. Haven't been burned, though. 
All right. Well, I I hate to tell you this. I hate to be the one to warn you. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. They they will get you. Uh, I yeah. I have had many many a ticket there. Um, second Detroit style question. This one uh, coming from this is the one I teased earlier from at by Charles Curtis, our <laughs> colleague Charles. Uh, and this is important because this is another thing that is very new to me. Uh, what is your take? on Detroit-style pizza, and why isn't it more popular? My take, it has come to New York City, and it is, and he, this is Charles, and Charles is a very patient and reasonable man, but he puts this all caps, fantastic. So, full disclosure, I have grown up around this style of pizza, I've been around it for years. I didn't know until very recently that it was actually called Detroit-style pizza. Well, you just call it pizza. Right. It was just pizza, but it wasn't, you know, you know what Chicago style pizza is, you know what New York is. And I just, it it was a type of pizza. Um, For those who don't know, it is a form of deep dish where the crust is like really crunchy and like almost burned, but burned in a good way. Mm -hmm. And it's square and it comes um, like the dough is thick. But that's the part that makes it deep dish. It's not Chicago style deep dish where you have all your all your toppings and all your sauce and everything like that. But if you look at the actual crust, it's like relatively normal ish. Um, this is like super thick bread that's just cut into squares. And it's, it's like a oh, it's a clo- it's closer to what we call Sicilian pizza in New York City. Or, uh, yeah. OK. Yeah. Um, and you're for it. I am absolutely for it. I know people that um, there's a couple different pizza companies that are based in Detroit. Uh, Little Caesars has recently just not just, but has jumped on board with this type of style of pizza, offering it everywhere. But um, I'm particularly loyal to a pizza place called Jets, although I genuinely cannot remember the last time I had it. Um, but it is it is delicious. There is something about it that if you talk to anyone from Detroit or the metro Detroit area, they will know what you're talking about if you talk about this kind of pizza. it's We don't do circular pies generally. I mean, you can still get them, obviously. But, you know, we do this thick crust, square cut pizza, and it's awesome. I don't know why it's not more popular. I... You know, Detroit has a lot of really good food options that are just, they're very localized. And that's, couldn't really tell you why that is, why that hasn't burst onto the national scene. But it's pretty good. Yeah, I will say it's, it's I think that people, because I'm from New York City and live in New York City, people expect that I will be snobby about New York City pizza. <laughs> I love New York City pizza. I think it's really good. But I think that you can get good pizza in lots of places, and I like pizza variety. I do like Chicago deep dish pizza, but I I think I like the Detroit style, and then I've had it uh, even better. Now, I have only had it by making it myself, and so that's that's a little bit different. Um, uh, Charles refers to a place in New York City that serves it, and I will go there and eat it because I can't, I don't have a reference point. Like, I know that the Detroit style pizza I've attempted to make myself has been really good, but I don't know that it tastes exactly like Detroit pizza, but I'm all about it. Like I, I don't think I don't think pizza is the type of thing that we should get all. I don't know. I feel this way about most foods, but like 
I don't see why we need to like dig in behind one particular style. It's the same thing with barbecue. Like there are many different styles, and they all have value. Uh, in the case of pizza, I would say the only one I'm really not into is St. Louis style pizza. I don't know if you've had that, but they use uh, like processed fake cheese that's closer to American cheese, and that grosses me out. Ooh, I've never had that. Yeah, you can avoid it. You can avoid it. Yeah, you can avoid it. But uh, you just teased, you just dropped a big tease, which was that there are other great Detroit regional specialties that haven't gotten out. Name one. Can you name one? Um, I can. So as a vegetarian, this absolutely kills me that I definitely have not had this item in years. But the Coney Dog is a big thing. It is a hot dog with... um, I don't even know how to describe it. Like exceptionally spiced chili on top, loaded up with onions and mustard. Um, it's absolutely delicious. It, and you're claiming that you're claiming that for Detroit because the chili cheese dog is not like a, it's not a just a local phenomenon to Detroit. It's named that's that sounds like it's named for Coney Island. No. Um, you know, I actually think I read somewhere that that is where it originally got its name, but there's no cheese on this one. It's just onions okay. and mustard and so much chili. I think the last time I had one, probably like 15 years ago or something, what you, you it, it's almost, you eat it with a fork because it's just such a, a mess. Um, but there are a number of places in downtown Detroit and Detroit area where, People get these, and they're just the best. And if you've never had it, it's kind of like a staple. Like if you have a friend visiting with you in Detroit, it's like, okay, you've got to try this. This is a a thing that um, is just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I'd get down on that. I'd get down on that, and I'll say that, like, so they also call – in in Cincinnati, there is cheese on it, but in Cincinnati, the the Cincinnati chili – and cheese dog, they refer to as a coney as well. Uh, and but if you go to actual Coney Island, there's the Nathan's there, which is where all of this starts. But I, to me, like chili and cheese is not the main thing to get on a. It's, it doesn't seem like that's the the what you typically expect out of the Nathan's hot dog. Like for me, it's about just like ketchup, mustard, relish, sauerkraut if you want, not necessarily the chili. So at some point, there was like a, a translation error there, where like the the Nathan's hot dog. Uh, for which conies are typically named uh, does not actually have chili, but chili certainly is an upgrade to anything. Right. I know. Absolutely. And there's actually, there's two places, um, I think pretty much right next to each other. If I'm not mistaken, it's been a while in downtown Detroit. Um, one is American Coney Island and one is Lafayette Coney Island. And people are so exceptionally loyal to one or the other it's they make virtually the same kind of hot dog like this i mean people you they don't call it a hot dog they call it a coney dog but this is it's like a rivalry thing people are really loyal to either american or lafayette and it's totally taste preference i think i I, like a little like like a mini version of like pats versus genos in philly yeah exactly something like that and um you know, something that comes with this also is, have, have you heard of Verner's? No. No? Oh, my gosh. See, this is also another Michigan thing. Verner's is a type of sweet ginger ale, very exclusive to Michigan, and this is what you do. You go to Lafayette, and you get a Coney Dog with a can of Verner's, and that is, like, the most quintessential 
Detroit, Michigan meal you can have. Simple, easy, delicious. See, I love learning this stuff, and it and it kind of brings back the Cuban coffee thing. Is like that <laughs> when I tweeted that, it was like I, I was in genuine interest of like I said before I tweeted the thing. Like I don't know anything about Miami coffee culture, just like I would say I don't know anything about Detroit hot dog culture. I love learning this stuff. Like I love going places and finding the regional specialties. And I don't know. I felt like it was maybe a little bit ironic that I should become the target of so much vitriol because I do feel like I am someone who specifically seeks out the regional specialties in any mm-hmm. area I visit. And that's awesome. I feel like that's what you should do. Of course it's a, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and we live in 2017. You don't have to eat fast food anymore. Like it used to be, you'd go on the road and be like, oh, I'm in some tiny little town. I don't know what's here. Ah, there's a McDonald's. I'll just go to McDonald's. I know what I'm about to get. Now everybody's got access to all the world's information at their fingertips, literally at their fingertips. You can just look up like, oh, what is the best food in Ypsilanti, Michigan? And you can pull up like 30 different recommendations with like the best regional cuisines of Ypsilanti, Michigan, where I've never been, but I recognize has a funny name. It does have a funny name. I think there's that is on a long list of cities in Michigan that you could probably not pronounce. Um, there, there's a lot of those. French history and Native American history. Those uh, create for some challenging names. But, yeah, I think that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go to new places and try new things. And for better or for worse, as a vegetarian, I am somewhat limited. Oh, I forgot you're a vegetarian. Yeah. I, this is, we only have vegetarians on the Friday show. I know, yeah, see, me and Hummel. Um, so our next question comes from uh, at Dennis has a podcast, the DHAP show on Twitter. Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, I've never really thought about it. I, I, that's not true. I think about this all the time. He wants to know, what is the tallest you want would want to be? He gives the example of Aaron Judge, who's six foot seven inch, and points out that must be a logistical nightmare. So that's actually a really interesting question because I'm only five feet tall um, and have dealt with short jokes my entire life. <laughs> it's very easy, you know, and especially growing up, like people would come up and rest their arms on my head and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I definitely like, did some I definitely did some resting my arms and I'm not a very tall person, but I'm 5'10", so you need to feel taller than the people you are taller than. And I've definitely done a lot of like resting my arm on shorter people's heads. Yeah, absolutely. Guilty Um, of that. (laughs) But so in that sense, you know, I always thought that being short, I mean, I've been this tall since I was like 12 years old. And so I've had a really long time to get used to it. And the thing is, I have realized that with the exception of not being able to reach things on high shelves, um, there are a lot of benefits to being short. So I can honestly say that it probably wouldn't, I wouldn't, don't think I'd want to be taller than like 5'4". Um, there are, I, I, in college, I used to take this road trip on a bus out West and go skiing with some friends. And, you know, it's like a 35 hour bus ride and being short, I was the only one that could stand up in my seat, not create any problems for people in the walkway and be able to stretch my legs. And everyone else who's taller than me is sitting there looking at me like, Oh, I hate you. And I'm like, well, this is what I get for not being able to reach things on high shelves. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, I'm used to as a as a straight 
white, five foot ten, college educated male. I am used to the world sort of being built to my specifications. <laughs> um, but I do, I do always envy the tall, mostly because I'm so bad at basketball, and I feel like maybe at least if I were like six foot four, I could probably dunk, and then would not be the worst basketball player on the court at any given time. I also feel like honestly, if I were seven foot tall, I think the stat is something like twenty percent of American seven foot wind up in the NBA at some point and so I feel like it's it's something I'm like absurd and I feel like if I were seven foot tall I would work hard enough to get myself into the NBA and so that would be awesome but yeah being seven foot tall I think otherwise would be yeah a logistical nightmare you could not fly coach right like you just simply couldn't fly coach and and I think that probably I take for granted a lot of the aspects about being five foot ten or maybe generously five foot ten uh that I that I don't I don't really consider when it comes to sitting down on an airplane seat or driving in the back seat of a car or any number Mm -hmm. of those things where like I happen to hang out with a lot of really tall dudes. I don't know why, but I see it when they're like cramping themselves into places, and it's like, ah, oh, this is nice. I got tons of love uh, of leg room in the back of this uh, back of this cab. So I don't know. I'm I'm. I think in a sports, if you're looking in a from a sports angle, obviously, I the vast majority of sports, I think it benefits you to be tall. But right. Also, the majority of us don't become high level or professional athletes. And so, generally speaking, it's a logistical nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I went to, you know, I this is vaguely related to that. Like, I so years back, I went to, there was an event in New York City, Shaq curated an, an art show. And I went because, I, I don't know, I had a background in art, and I love Shaq, and it's um, like sports and art interceding, and, yeah, and, and I, should, I should check that out. And... The thing that really like so and it was it was all sized themed and like so everything was about scale and things that were stretched out or things that were tiny or things that were especially big and the piece in the art exhibit that moved me the most and it's funny to even use that term for like some maybe a little silly and there there were real there was real art in there like it wasn't like Shaq had just like picked out a bunch of stuff his friends drew or whatever like there were these were real artists that he had had found and curated um sure. but the thing that moved me in in this in this exhibit was this just all it was was just an an oversized table they just made a table and chairs that were like 10 times the scale or something like that four times the sta- scale of a regular table and chairs and and uh the the way it was displayed was that it was in this room that was a fairly large room but but way 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 too small for this table and chairs and for a second i kind of felt shack like in a way that i didn't know mm-hmm. i might like because then you think like okay shack is this guy we identify for his tremendous size and for his basketball ability and and all of these things that his size have brought him at some point shack was like a 12-year-old kid who was trying to jam himself into one of those little school desks who was just way too big and like I I I don't know for a second I could because because this this table was so cramped into this room I felt like I could feel that like that discomfort that must come along with being so exceptionally large all the time right and and if you have an athletic skill that comes with that size um that sort of that realm caters to you because that that's, there's other, you know, Shaq is exceptional, 
but there are other people of somewhat similar size compared to the general population. But when you talk about real world, it's not accommodating to be exceptionally tall. Like the real world does not accommodate super tall people. So yeah, so I guess to answer Dennis's question, I would go I would go a little bit more than because you, you're you're taking on four inches. I think I might go as far as like six foot four. It would be cool to be like six foot four. Mm-hmm. Um and Isn't I know Charles that Charles like six four? I don't think he's quite I don't think he's quite I would say Charles is like he's very I, I tall. Don't know what it was. I saw him and you know having never met in person a lot of you guys in New York, I, I don't think I'd ever seen him stand up. And so I'm, oh, it was standing next to Michael Phelps. And he was about the same size, height-wise, he was about the same size as Michael Phelps. And I was shocked by this. Charles is tall. I would guess Charles is like 6'2", would be my guess off the top of my head, but I haven't asked. Um, I would want to be, like, I would want to be just a little bit taller than that, because I feel like at 6'2", I wouldn't be able to dunk. And at 6'4", I would be close enough that I would spend all of my life training to dunk and would probably be able to get myself to dunk. Like you could reasonably make it work at that height, right? Exactly. Like, and yeah. like, and not at my current athleticism, but I think if it were that obtainable, like if I could see the 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 dunk, like if I could gr- reach up and and grab the rim, I would be like, okay, like I'm working on calf explosiveness now, and I'm gonna figure out how to dunk. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's a if you put a little work into it, it's totally reasonable that you could make that happen. Speaking of Charles, our last question also <laughs> comes from Charles, uh, and 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 we both have to get back to work. So this one's clearly well. He says, assuming I'm been to a race of some sort, but this one's for you. He says, uh, "What's the weirdest thing you've witnessed at a racetrack?" Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, (laughs) I am, you know, only just started covering NASCAR and motorsports in February. So I've only been to a handful of races. But the ones that I have been to, I I have been told, are truly the anomalies of motorsports. Um, With uh, the Daytona 500 and the Indy 500. And then, uh, in May, I also went down to Alabama for the, uh, Talladega super speedway race. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. People sort of, when I went down to Talladega, people had described it as, you know, fellow reporters and stuff, almost trying to warn me a little bit, described it as motorsports meeting Mardi Gras. Okay, that sounds fun. Right. And so you're like, okay, this is interesting Um, because you don't really know what to expect. You think it's sort of like a big party and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, you've seen a party before. You've seen like whatever it may be, tailgates or even past races and stuff. Um, But this place is, there is something special about it. Uh, At night... um, but if the race is Talladega, Talladega Nights, we know about that as a thing. Right. Oh, NASCAR fans absolutely love Talladega Nights. Um, so one of the uh, – this might be the strangest thing. Yeah. Um, on one of the nights, they there's all kinds of activities for fans who are in the infield of this track. And the track is two and a half for 2.6 miles long. That's a lot of space mm-hmm. inside the track. So yeah. There's tons of different activities. Most revolve around drinking. Um, but they had this one thing that they had people volunteering to compete in different types of contests and and they call the whole sort of party, um, they call it the big one on the boulevard. It's like a, a notoriously large party that features 
the drivers and they get these fans together and all that. And so they have these different contests for fans. And one of them was they had to, they had like four or five people sitting there and they had put a bowl of, don't know what temperature, a bowl of queso, like liquid queso in front of them. And these people had to, I think it was like 32 ounces or something like that. It's a lot. It is a lot. And they had to, it was a race to drink it, to see who could drink. Oh, God. Yeah, 32 ounces of queso um, as fast as you could. One poor guy almost lost it a little bit. That was a little scary. I would imagine a lot of people would lose it if they were trying to drink 32 (laughs) ounces of cheese. Well, so that was like the opening act of this big contest party thing. Another one was they gave people these costumes to dress up as different vegetables and a chicken and stuff like that and had them... um, Did you accidentally do peyote before Talladega? I know. I didn't. (laughs) I swear. This is a real thing. It is on FTW's website. Um, they had people, they had four member teams and you were dressed up as a chicken or tomato or cheese or a pepper, I think. And it was a relay race through a huge vat of queso, like a 300 pound pool of the same (laughs) dip that people were drinking. And it was, I think they were trying to make a human taco or a human burrito or something like that. And so you race through this pool, get to the other end. And then the next guy would go and race through this pool. And it was, that was probably this whole evening around activities of swimming and drinking large amounts of queso. That was probably the most interesting thing I've ever seen. But I was also told that in past years they had wrestled in barbecue sauce and had human hamster ball races. And so... I even asked one of the drivers, Kyle Larson, what he thought about it, and he he said it might be a little stranger than most Talladega experiences, but it was pretty much on par. That sounds awesome. I mean, like that's a, it seems like an egregious waste of cheese, but otherwise sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, it's like just one giant party, and they they get people to do these ridiculous things, and it's not even that people are reluctant to do this. You have multiple teams of you know four signed up to swim through a giant vat of queso. That's so much better than I've never been to I've never been into any sort of like auto that that I can think of. I've never really been to any sort of auto race. The only racetrack story I had was that uh in New Jersey when I was growing up there was this park action park which was like the the cut rate amusement park in New Jersey compared to Six Flags. So like once a summer we go to Action Park and Action Park had all of these issues like there was a slide that never opened because supposedly someone died in the testing there were uh there was there's tons of stuff tons of stuff it was we called it traction park and if you look up the wikipedia page uh you will see reference to traction park that was like a pretty commonly used nickname and then like a list of all of the different injuries that people suffered at action park which were legion because they um they were like very uh you had a lot of control over things so it was like tarzan swing and if you forget to let go of the tarzan swing you just go crashing 
crashing into a concrete wall, and they put it in wow. the middle, and they put it in the middle of New Jersey, and they served beer. So it was just like a uh, this like nightmarish idea uh, where tons of people got hurt all the time. There are snakes in the mini golf course. There are like tons of different issues, but one of them was that at the uh, at the go kart track. The go-karts, and I guess this is standard for go-karts, they're, they're governed so they can only go 20 or 25 miles an hour or something, but yeah. the employees knew how to take them off. And so every once in a while, uh, someone would get a go-kart where they had forgot to put the governor back on, and it happened to my dad. And so my poor dad, who's like a very, uh, he's not a very aggressive guy, and he's like not the type who would be like about macho go-kart behavior, he got this go-kart that was going like 50 miles an hour, and just like flying around the track oh while the rest God. was, and he had like no control over it, and that was fairly entertaining, but nothing like a giant vat of cheese. That is, no, that sounds very interesting, and I mean, that's how a lot of uh, race car drivers get their start. They get their start in go-karts, but it's Is that not. really, is that true? Yeah. Huh. That, but it's it's not the kind that you and I drive, yeah, with the, the governor or um, restrictor plate on or whatever you want to call it that limits the speed of it. It's, you know, real racing. So is that like the minor leagues? Is there like go-kart circuits for teenagers where they're like scouting the next NASCAR guys? You know, I haven't totally dug that deep into it, but I am pretty positive that that's what happens for a lot of young drivers. These guys are know how to, the ones that are up and coming especially, they know how to drive race cars before they're probably legally allowed to get a driver's license. You know, I've, I've, I've never thought about that before, but that makes sense, right? Because, like, if you're playing any other sport, you're training from the time you're, you're five, basically, yeah. whether, it's, whether it's with the goal of playing professional basketball or not, you're playing basketball because it's a sport you play as a little kid, and some people merge as good. But in driving, if you're not allowed to drive until you're 16 or 17, like, how do you practice? Right. And, and I think there there is just there's a difference between driving out on the road and trying to compete in a sport. But a lot of people get their starts racing go karts and then slowly work their way up there through different types of cars before they actually, you know, even then when they're an older teenager, then they, they've had years of experience and then they get behind the wheel of something resembling a stock car, for example. Michelle, thank you so much for educating me on <laughs> the auto industry and the auto racing industry today. I am happy to. Thanks so much for having me. You can check out Michelle on at For the Win, of course, uh, both of us writing there. Michelle does a ton of awesome racing stuff. Uh, really, even as someone who doesn't follow racing, all really fascinating, interesting stuff. Definitely check that out. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, at M-M-A-R-T-I-N-E-L-L-I-4, because somehow someone already has regular M. Martinelli, there are th- one, two, and three. Okay, <laughs> well, so so at M. Martinelli, four, uh, spelled like the apple juice, like the sparkling cider? Yes, not uh, my family, but spelled like the sparkling cider. Uh, check that out. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you. Peace out.